Hello, and welcome to TV Saves the World. I am Elam, and I'm drunk. I'm Priya, and I wish that I were high. We're still quarantined, so all we can do is consume things. And today, we are talking about tokenization in sci-fi TV. A lot of things happened since we last recorded a podcast, and at some point in time, everything was on fire because the police killed somebody and it was super public, and then we, everybody collectively realized that police do this all the fucking time. So our last couple episodes that we recorded were post-COVID, but pre-George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Yeah. When I was editing them and when I released the latest one, the YA superhero one, I was like... Well, a lot of our discussion was very prescient, but also it sounds really weird as a result because (laughs) it's like, why are these people like discussing police brutality and not like saying like, it almost sounds like we're actively avoiding like the actual issue, which we were not. (laughs) I mean, I guess it's not exactly surprising that we were bumping up against it because this is like a very social justice oriented podcast, but at the same time, I I guess it just shows how good we are at social forecasting or something. Yeah, we're great at this. Also, we have been, like, you know, cared about this before it was popular, so there is that. Yeah, for some definition of popular, I guess. But <laughs> I mean, look, as far as I can tell, if you want to throw a party in 2020, what you do is you post faces with Black Lives Matter. Yeah. <laughs> Dolores I mean, Park for so- Black Lives Matter. <laughs> Drinking beer for Black Lives Matter. Yeah. <laughs> it is also nice to see, like, there's been a lot of analysis that, like, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests did not actually spike COVID rates anywhere because people wore masks and, like, you know, mostly distance, but also, like, everyone actually wore masks. I mean, it, and, and it turns out that, you know, being outside at big distance with masks is not, it's not dangerous, which is a good thing that we have now learned, because if we are not going to get a vaccine in the next two months, we need to make this bearable for human beings. And that means that, you know, staying, staying in your house forever is not really going to be a thing we're going to do. I also kind of feel like I remember at the beginning of COVID, I was saying to people, like, if this goes on for more than a few months, there's going to be riots. And I just want to point out that I was correct. There were, <laughs> there were reopening. I mean, there were, there were reopening riots and then there were like justified BLM riots, but like everybody had a reason to riot, basically. I, I didn't believe you and you were right. I was really skeptical. I thought that people's willingness to stay in meant that they were not going to riot. And it turns out that I have underestimated Americans again. And I'm really glad. (laughs) I think the key thing to understand about Americans is that we'll try anything for like a while. Uh, And then because, you know, what else are we going to do? And then like eventually we're going to we will get bored of that and then move on to the next thing. So I think uh, today we wanted to maybe talk a little bit more about definitely explicitly racism in uh, science fiction and particularly the kind of like live action sci-fi TV that we tend to talk about. And then, you know, maybe that discussion also includes some of the things that are people's favorites, like She-Ra and the Princesses of Power or Kipo and the Age of Wonder Beasts. 
And we were like, hey, we should watch some TV shows um, with leading black characters. And then we had like a lot of difficulties finding anything that was made in the last 15 years that we had not already seen. I wonder why that could be. We try to compile a list, and what we learned from compiling that list is that all of those shows are written by white people. So, like, you know, like, Killjoys is one of my favorite shows, and the actress who plays the lead is, is half Nigerian, but it's, it's definitely written by white people, and, like, we've already talked about this. And we've talked extensively about The Watchmen, which, you know, famously features a black protagonist, and HBO made it free to watch on Juneteenth in what is definitely not a marketing gimmick. <laughs> And turned out to actually be a show about specifically how ambitious women of color are inherently evil and, like, must have stolen their ambition and intelligence from, like, evil white people. Unless, unless, unless they're, um, unless they're not ambitious, in which case they can have ultimate power by just marrying a guy for 10 years. Right. Like, the key is that the only good women of color are the ones who have no ambition. And they're there to just, to just care for a guy who's technically Jewish and not black originally although i mean that's kind of a good point i guess given the shape-shifting and apparently killing a bunch of you know kkk members is a dark night of the soul moment and not a triumphant thing we all want to see all the time anyway that's man that was an awkward moral for a show yeah <laughs> but uh then we you know we we, we um we looked at some stuff that we had not seen and none of it was very good and then we were like oh how about uh, Snowpiercer? Because that has David Diggs, and surely he was involved in writing it. And um, David Diggs is the guy that is famous for Hamilton, but I actually love him because he made a movie called Blind Spotting, which um, takes place in Oakland and is like about race relations in Oakland. And since we live in San Francisco, that's very dear and close to our hearts. Yeah, and David Diggs himself is an Oakland native. And yeah, Blind Spotting is a really good movie, and I believe it was uh, directed by Hiro Murai, who is the same director that Donald Glover works with on his music videos and on Atlanta. And also directs Billy Eilish for some reason. <laughs> I would I will also point out that David Diggs is Jewish, just because we, we brought this up earlier, but he's also black. Oh yeah, it turns out people of color can be all sorts of religions. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't want to. You know, I I, I said a thing before. I just wanted to, to clarify that was that was not what I meant. But yeah, so like Snowpiercer, that was that was a show that was not as good as Blind Spotting. Let's talk about Snowpiercer. First, the weather changed. The deniers knew why, but they still doomed us with their lies. War made the earth even hotter. Her ice melted, and all her species crashed. So the men of science tried to cool the earth, to reverse the damage they had sown. But instead, they froze her to the core. visionary Mr. Wilford foresaw the future, and he prepared the great arc train. In the final days of the freeze, the rich, many of them responsible, retreated to Snowpiercer, 1,001 cars long. So we, the people, the survivors left behind, we invaded their train. So 
should we give background on Snowpiercer for maybe people who still do not know? Yeah, sure. So Snowpiercer was a fantastic movie made by the guy who made Parasite. Bong Joon-ho. And it's a fantastic movie. It's very pretty. Um, it is about how after the end of the world, only people alive are on the train and the poor people live in the back of the train and the rich people live in the front of the train and the poor people stage an uprising to get to the front of the train and then things happen. So it has some of the same themes from Parasite. It's very allegorical. Um, it's very beautiful. There is a fantastic scene with a fish that Harvey Weinstein tried to cut out of it. And um, the director told him that the scene had to be in because his father was a fisherman, which is a lie. But Weinstein never bothered to check. <laughs> yeah. He just believed this to be true. I mean, I mean that just tells me that Bong Joon-ho has accurately gauged how to work with white people. <laughs> I was going to say, it turns out in addition to being, you know, sexist, rapist, asshole, he's also racist. Um, <laughs> and incapable of using Google. <laughs> but also, like doesn't care enough to, right? Like, it was really just about, like, asserting his own power, and then as soon as he got a lie that, like, made him feel better about, like, not asserting it, he was like, great. Yeah, so it was, you know, very successful. It features the guy who played Captain America, someone who's not Captain America. <laughs> and, yeah, and so then they were like, wow, successful commercial property, whatever can we do? How about a TV show? So do we want to give spoilers for Snowpiercer, the movie? Because, like, it did come out, like, seven years ago. So I feel like maybe we can give spoilers for that. Okay, I guess we can give some spoilers. Yeah. Well, specifically, the spoiler that I want to give is that, like, at the beginning of the movie, it tells you there's this train. The whole world is in basically a deep freeze caused by people trying to geoengineer away climate change, except for this train is still going and it's perpetual motion. And then if you stop the movie at any point before you get all the way through, you will just continue to be confused about this. It'll be like perpetual motion doesn't exist. What's wrong with this director? And then you find out by perpetual motion powered, what, what he meant is that the people who made the train foresaw that there would be all these people who would try to get onto it and be in the back. And they specifically steal those people's children to work the engine in the front. It's not a metaphor for colonialism. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It definitely has nothing to do with colonialism and classism and uh, oppression and like oppressive structures in the name of survival. And for me, it just kind of like, what happened was I remembered, oh, right, it was that movie about a train and it starred Chris Evans, but as like someone, but like way more attractive than he is as Captain America. I personally think I'm sure everyone else disagrees with me. Uh, I don't, I don't disagree with you. <laughs> Thanks, Elam. I'm glad, I'm glad someone else agrees with me. <laughs> like, I, I think Captain America would be a great like video game buddy, but I just, I just, I just don't see it in a... God, I just... Captain, the Steve Rogers, the Steve Rogers character really bothers me, and I really think it is a testament to Chris Evans' acting skill that he manages to act himself unattractive in his like major breakout <laughs> role. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I, I I I appreciate I appreciate having friends like that, but I just I just don't see it as a sexual thing. God, I don't know. Every time I see Steve Rogers on screen, I just want to be like, my dude, you're so lucky to live in the future. Weed is legal now. Just have an edible and enjoy your life. You know, <laughs> you don't have to go around looking so tragic all the time. Uh, I have bad news for you about goths, man. <laughs> no, but even 
I've known a lot of gods, and they do not look as tragic as Steve Rogers does. <laughs> or maybe I should put it this way: it looks like they have actually embraced their tragicness and are in- and are like actually enjoying it and are like committed to it and like are owning it as opposed to Captain America, who is just like I'm super sad and will do absolutely nothing about it. I mean, I appreciate that he's one of the few like Marvel characters that has like a sense of right and wrong that he deeply believes in. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. I also feel like he was just really on the wrong side of Civil War, which, like... Oh, really... I skipped that. I never I never saw any of that, so that's part of it. Oh, yeah. So, like, that really annoyed me, mostly because... And admi- admittedly, I'm not super in the Marvel fandom, so I don't know, but I've never seen an analysis that points this out either, which is that the whole point of Geneva Accords, which is, like basically this pact that they are supposed to sign that says that if the Avengers want to go somewhere and like fuck it up in the course of saving humanity, that they need to have permission to do so first, like from those people, like they can't just show up somewhere. They have to like go and like talk to the civilian government and like, you know, explain what the problem is and then like get permission before they go. For me, it's just just like, like this is literally the principle of civilian control of the military, which the America pioneered, like, legally. <laughs> like, that was one of the big legal innovations in our Constitution at the time that it was written. So you would think that Captain America would know that. Like, and, and from what I understand, like, the people who most know about this now are the military. Like, the military has super ingrained in them. Like, we do, we are here to do what, this, what civilians tell us to do. So the fact that Captain America not only, so not only does he not, apparently not understand like this is literally just civilian control of the military he also then says in the movie this is this is uh taking away our right to choose which just made me so 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 angry because it's like such an appropriation of like a principle that like i as a person with a uterus need like for my life i don't know so it just yeah that that also really 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 bothered yeah, that's no, that's that's legit. I'm sorry. I was I was thinking of, you know, like Steve Rogers from like the first movie where he fights Nazis. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, I think in many ways he is. And the second movie where he breaks up Shield because Shield is bad. Just say, those two movies he's great. Everything else after that uh wasn't there. He just really reminds me of all of the all of the like well-meaning white guys I know who are really really good at like dealing with the problem that is right in front of them and really, really, really bad at like trying to apply any kind of effort or thought to problems that are not right in front of them. Uh, And also I think he should have edibles. That is my stance on Captain America. Anyway, there were no edibles on the train. So, (laughs) so, so Piercer is basically this whole movie about like, okay, so like they stage this revolution up from the bottom, from the back of the train to the front, they find out that like, you know, their kids are being held in like, kind of just this really awful, like, like child labor slavery situation. And then they like stop the train, right? Like they're like, no, like humanity's survival is not in fact worth this price. And so... I think what's weird about the TV show is that it is a prequel, like it is therefore necessarily a prequel to these events, which means that it can't actually grapple with them in any meaningful way. I thought it was an alternate history. I mean, it might be that I rage quit too soon. I'm not sure. Ah, Maybe this is something that uh, happens like later in the season. Uh, I guess I have to like watch more and find out. But 
like when you're watching the TV show, everyone who's watching the TV show like probably has seen Snowpiercer at least like initially, and so is coming to it with like this set of expectations about this and like those expectations then necessarily cannot be met it's actually kind of similar to how i felt about all the battlestar galactica prequels where i was like i don't understand why you would choose this series to prequel because like the whole like all of the interesting stuff like necessarily happens in the series itself and not and therefore like what do you like the prequels cannot be as interesting like you're just shooting yourself in the foot yeah, I, I agree with you. And it's not clear from watching it that it wasn't a prequel. And even if it's not a prequel, I mean, they're not going to overthrow the trained government like, you know, in the beginning of the first season. So yeah, what's the point? Right, exactly. So like you as the viewer are left kind of watching it and going like, okay, like, yes, I we're exploring why this train is bad. I already know why it's bad. <laughs> like, why am I watching this? And then there was also this whole thing about it's how it's a cop show. And so like this was, you know, a critic who watched the first episode and was like, this whole episode is about like how this woman keeps going up to David Diggs and being like, you're the only homicide detective we have on the train. We need you. Like it, it cast current day police as mostly competent and like the cops on the train, like it also shows a lot of cops on the train who are not competent. And then it also points out that they were not trained as cops. So it just like subverts its own messaging there. Um, but like it has like, you know, the one cop who is trained as a cop, like is really good at his job, which like we definitely have reason to believe is not in fact true of the current police. And that like, you know, the lie that this is the case, like, does a lot of harm to people right now. And it's really weird to watch a show um, where, you know, a Black protagonist fights against the establishment, um, which primarily appears to be white, um, and have him be a cop in the current climate. And I would point out the plot of Blind Spotting does literally start with a cop shooting an unarmed Black guy in Oakland. Yeah. So it's, you know, we kept... Um, I think when we started watching it, I was like, wow, like, this is good. But, like, David Diggs didn't write this show. And uh, sometimes you can see him, like, act in a, act his way out of a terrible script. And bits where you're like, the script is better. And I assume that David Diggs had something to do with it because the rest of the script is not. Yeah. So kind of going off what we were uh, talking about earlier in terms of like white showrunners and white leadership. So one of the conversations that has been coming out a lot on Twitter recently is this conversation of like, you know, uh, black and creatives and creatives who are people of color who were in writers rooms, sometimes TV writers rooms, sometimes like the Cards Against Humanity uh, writer's room, et cetera, et cetera, and just being treated really, really, really horribly and in really tokenizing ways by their white bosses. And like, so, and so for all the shows that we're, that we're talking about today, I looked up the IMDb, the IMDb pages, uh, with the showrunners and the writers. And in every single case, the showrunners are all white, uh, generally, they're men. Uh, like in one of the cases, they're women. And then in the case of Snowpiercer, I think there's like one or two writers of color in an otherwise pretty white male room. Yeah, that makes sense. What 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 we're kind of seeing happen is, it to me, it feels like what we're seeing happen is this thing where like like white guys have learned that like people want diversity and they want revolutionary politics. Um, and so they have just learned to write scripts that like 
edge closer and closer to the appearance of that without actually giving over any meaningful power to people of color or to the idea that like revolutionary politics can be good and necessary. I mean, I feel like you have to actually understand revolutionary politics to write about it. You can't just get an appearance of it and you can understand it by being in it or you can understand it by being involved in it or you can understand it by having a material interest as the Marxist kids would say. Um, (laughs) uh, So, you know, probably if you're a person of color, you have a material interest in fighting racism. And so you probably have a better understanding of it by necessity in that sense. Um, But like, if you're just coming into it and you're like, ah, revolution is in, we're going to put barrettes on everyone. (laughs) Yeah. The bad guys will also be rich. Yeah. Are we good? We're good. Awesome. (laughs) Shit. Yeah. And like, like, at least to me, in the first several episodes, it seems like the whole cop thing is just kind of the aesthetic cover for like making revolutionary politics palatable to like an uninformed viewer, which obviously I did not love. Um, that I was willing to accept that maybe this was like an accident of timing. You know, I mean, they didn't know that the BLM protests were going to start right around the time that they released this episode. Yeah. So, or that they released the series. So I was like, okay, you know, it seems like they're trying to do something. They're trying to go somewhere more interesting with it. So I will like give them the benefit of the doubt. And like, I actually think in the first four episodes, they do that reasonably well. Like they have like a pretty interesting and I think plausible like scenario in terms of like uh in terms of like here is how the ruling class like continues to keep their power here is how they think about how they exercise it like here is uh how they have access to the levers of power you know etc etc uh and then here is how David Diggs like as a person from the tail of the train like needs to like finesse his way through in order to be able to gain even like the barest minimum of knowledge about this in order to be able to help his people. Like that's, that's also, I think pretty well done. So like the first few episodes, I actually was kind of on board with it, even though that was like the whole cop plot line. Um, The part where I started to nope out was, so was like that, that case gets resolved. Well, quote unquote resolved in the first uh, few episodes. And then after that, it's kind of like, okay, now he's, it, it kind of starts to get a little bit unmoored uh, without uh, having that thing for the writers to write to. And then that's where it feels like it starts to show like here is like here is the actual problem with having white guys uh, like non-revolutionary white guys try to write these things because then it starts to get to the point where Debbie Diggs is like, oh God, I actually can't get, I actually can't do anything. Like in fact, if I jeopardize this system, like it is actually a bad thing. Um, and that to me is really the epitome of like, like the whole point is that we need to jeopardize these systems because it's not actually clear that all these bad things that we think are going to happen by jeopardizing them will actually happen. In fact, I would argue that like when we say bad things will happen, if we change, if we like destroy these systems, like those bad things are only bad for this certain subset of people who are currently profiting off the systems. I mean, I also just think that if you're not willing to accept the possibility of destruction, you can never have meaningful reform. Yeah. Even if, even if you're not, even if your interest is to reform it and not, you know, crash the train, you you have to accept that if you don't reform it, someone's going to crash the damn train. Because historically, what we have learned is that no one's really willing to change things unless they're deeply concerned the train might crash. 
no one no one was like excited about having a really limited constitutional monarchy until they realized the alternative looked like the French Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yes. listening to a podcast. <laughs> As usual, you have taken what I was trying to say and condensed it into <laughs> something that actually makes sense. <laughs> but yes. I've been thinking about it a lot in terms of, you know, abolish the police and how, how yeah. we go, where we go from here. So, Yeah. And then, uh, oh yeah, the other thing that I did want to say before we wrap up is just that uh, it is really interesting to me how much the show... Snowpiercer is actually about white feminism in a way that like I wouldn't have expected like it, it it's not clear to me that that naturally out comes out from the movie it seems more like the you know the white guy showrunners were like ah we should like have more diversity than just a v digs I know we'll just put white women everywhere and also a couple of Asian women that'll do it uh, and so it kind of ends up weirdly being this thing about like white women arguing with each other and like often using Davy Diggs as kind of their pawn to argue with each other. I mean, I feel like it's, it's, it's not just the one diversity. It's also the like, Oh, um, you know, what'll make her sympathetic. What if she has boobs? That yeah. way she's a complex character. She's not altogether evil because she's a woman. And I mean, women, you know, they, they can't just be evil unless they're really, really evil. <laughs> I do think that they really, really lucked out by having Jennifer Connelly play this role, uh, because, like, I, I think, like, a lot of the watchability of this TV show, like, I definitely would have rage quit this TV show a lot earlier if Jennifer Connelly and Davie Diggs had not been there, because I think they do both bring really a lot of very interesting complexity and watchability to the characters that they play. Yeah, I can see that. Also, I don't think there were a lot of women involved in, you know, writing the screenplay for this show or anything, so. Yeah. Just saying. Yeah. Uh, all right, cool. So uh, that's our Snowpiercer discussion. Uh, what are we talking about next, Dylan? Uh Well, after Snowpiercer, we were really bummed out because COVID's still going and we were really depressed, so we watched a lot of cartoons. And spoiler alert, they did not make us feel any better. <laughs> Stay tuned for Shira and the Princesses of Power. We're on the edge of greatness, turning darkness to light. We're right beside you, ready to fight. We're gonna win in the end. We must be strong and we must be brave. We must be brave. We gotta fight and feel the strength that we have and never let it go. And we're back. Woo! Yay. Okay, so She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, and then also kind of additional to this conversation is going to be Kipo and the Age of Wonder Beasts. I am so excited because I have been waiting so long to rant about She-Ra and how much I dislike it. <laughs> um, but Elam, what do you know about She-Ra and the Princesses of Power? Uh, I know that a lot of people that I really like really enjoy that show. 
someone I have a crush on likes it a great deal, so I'm like really biased. And I want to say anything bad about it on a podcast in case they listen to it. Uh-huh. <laughs> I tried to watch the beginning. And it was kind of like watching our college friend, like, become a magical princess. But, like, her life was okay. So I don't know why she needs to be a magical princess. Um, so then I skipped ahead to season three. And that was better because there was more humor involved. And so I was a fan of that. But then I didn't really watch a lot of it because I got distracted by something shiny that was somewhere else. Um, but I understand that it has a lot of, like, really hot bisexuals on it or something. And I'm all for, like, hot, you know, queer people making out. I don't know if there's any making out, though. I bet there isn't. It's a children's show. I'm actually unsure about the the bisexual uh, and queer representation on Shira because, like, it seems like there's a lot of kind of, like, very suggestive nods to queer representation. Like, Scorpia, for example, is very clearly drawn as like what we would call in our world a butch lesbian but at the same time it's very much not clear to me that she is actually like textually queer it it's weird because it does that thing that children's shows do where they, they they're, they're too cowardly to to have the thing be real like how in steven universe there are these three women raising a boy but they're just friends it's not you know it's not like, you know, a polyamorous, it's not actually a gay polyamorous relationship, but of course, everyone who watches Steven Universe wants to read it that way. Um, right. But it's this weird, like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. They're not gay. They're just really close friends. It's a metaphor. <laughs> we can't get gay on the children. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I think uh, if we rewind a little bit, like, the, when we were talking about this last week, the show that we really. Uh, wanted to keep referencing that I think is very important to understand as the foundation for a lot of these is Sailor Moon. You were ever like on the Sailor Moon train, Elam? Oh, I was. It's a huge Sailor oh, Moon fan as a kid. Hell's yeah, Mars, oh, man. Sailor Mars yeah. had it. Oh my god. Okay, let's talk about Sailor Moon and how great it is. <laughs> Sailor Moon was awesome. Uh, there, there was yeah, there was Sailor Mars, and she was competent all about the fire. And there was Sailor Mercury, and she was a nerd. And then they were talking cats. 
I don't know yeah. how anybody could not like this show. And, like, I mean, there was a guy, and I guess, you know, the protagonist had a crush <laughs> on him. But, like, he really felt very <laughs> auxiliary to everything else going on. Like <laughs> He was so he was, auxiliary. <laughs> it's it's how, like, you know, in Transformers there is Megan Fox. And you're like, yes, the point of Megan Fox is that, like, if you're if you, if you win, you get to make out with... I mean, that was the point of Tuxedo Mask. If you win, you get to make out with Tuxedo Mask. Yes. <laughs> that was very explicitly the point of Tuxedo Mask. And I think even as a kid, I really loved how auxiliary he was to the plot. Uh, like, So I was also a huge Sailor Moon fan. In fact, when I was like seven to... I was like eight or nine years old, I think. I like drew... I decorated my room with like all of this fan art of Sailor Moon that I had drawn. <laughs> uh, uh. <laughs> and I'm really not a fan art drawer. <laughs> But like it was, it was an easy show to fan art because they all have color schemes and hair schemes, and once you get those, you know who they are. You know, Sailor Moon was the last cartoon that I ever saw in uh, in Russia before I went to the United States, so I was I was really sentimental about it. Ah, yeah. So like, I think Sailor Moon was so great for a lot of reasons. Like one of the reasons that you brought up was that it actually had very very good side characters. Um, like, you know, Sailor Mars and Sailor Mercury were not technically the protagonist, but they're also the ones who everyone wants to be when they grow up. Like, no one actually wants to be uh, Usagi or Serena or whatever name I you mean, want to give her. None of us did. I'm sure someone did somewhere. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, okay, maybe. I guess I have not spoken to, like, the millions and millions of Sailor Moon fans in the world. Um but uh, but I think it, it definitely says something that like people could identify with so many of the different characters. Whereas you know if we take uh, Shira and the Princesses of Power, for example, I don't really feel like any of the side characters are actually compelling enough for a child to point to them and be like, "I want to be that person." I mean, a lot of people identify with characters online, right? Like people, you know, dress up as Scorpio and stuff, and I can see how it can be very. Um very good to see someone like you in a show. And I mean, as someone who is kind of butch, I mean, that, that does make me feel happy that that is, that is a thing that happens. Yeah, it is true that I think Scorpia, I guess it is true that Scorpia is actually the one exception to that. Like Scorpia is, I think far and away, like the best character out of Shira. I mean, I think also is that we don't have a lot of models like that. Like when I was growing up, I didn't see any models of anyone who would be, you know, sort of coded as a butch lesbian, except maybe, uh, um Vasquez on in Aliens 2 and I mean she's not a lesbian but that's like the closest he got to 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 a female character that wasn't you know canonically feminine and Sailor Moon in the later seasons had lesbians but the uh the non-Japanese versions whitewashed well quote-unquote whitewashed they straight washed them to be cousins instead of lesbians <laughs> it was so confusing i just assumed that japanese cousins were just very um very close so that's why they slept <laughs> in the same bed and participated <laughs> in couples competitions and lived together and one of them had short hair and drove a motorcycle and the other one was traditionally like very feminine and they were always <laughs> hanging out and kissing each other's hands I just assumed that cousins did that, which since I don't have any cousins, luckily, like. (laughs) (laughs) See, I had a lot of cousins, but I I don't think I ever actually got to that part of Sailor Moon. (laughs) 
Yeah, I wonder what I would have thought. I, yeah, I don't think I ever actually got to later seasons. Like there was like a, a rerun of like the first several seasons before they imported the later ones. And then I, I think I stopped watching around that time. But it's the same sort of problem where um, instead of just having, you know, lesbians on television, we have characters that if you're reading into this, sort of if you Google this, or if you already identify that way, you look at them and you say, ah, a person with you know short hair and a motorcycle and and boobs aha they're kind of like me i get it but uh, but you're not you know that it's not it's not explicit yeah yeah and so i think this takes me back to kind of that discussion of queer coding in shira because i think a lot of people explicitly want to read katra and adora so katra is the main antagonist and adora is the main protagonist there we go and a lot of and a lot of the plot basically revolves around Katra's obsession with Adora. The way that I feel when I see this is I'm like, okay, some people watched Wicked in the early 2000s and then aggressively misunderstood the plot <laughs> and the lessons. <laughs> like that's what I think because like this whole concept of like in Shira, Katra, Katra has two interests, which are Adora and world domination. Like that's literally it. Can we just can we just point out how weird it is to have children's cartoons where somebody's interest is another character in that cartoon? That didn't used to be the case. No one in Thundercats was like, my primary interest is hanging out with Lino. Yeah. Like even the bad guys weren't about that. And like in Sailor Moon, I mean, like they're all about, you know, taking over the world and summoning demons, but no, but no one is really like, my interest is Unagi. She's so cute. Even Tuxedo Mask <laughs> was just kind of there. And I mean, he's literally just the pretty love interest. Yeah, like, Tuxedo Mask was into her, but he also had other things that he was doing with his life. <laughs> and... I don't remember anything about what they were. I assume it was going <laughs> shopping for perfectly elastic tuxedos you can climb up rooftops in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And roses. And roses to throw. That Those were very important. <laughs> but also, even as much as uh, Usagi was into him, like, he also was not her primary... Like, he was not her only interest in life. Like, she had other interests. Like, she had friends. She had to, like, not fail at school. She had friends who were outside of the Sailor Scouts, even. You know, she had this cat who she had to deal with. And she understood that, like... Being obsessed with Tuxedo Mask was separate from, like, saving the world. Yeah, I mean, she was saving the world. Tuxedo Mask just happened to conveniently be there every time. But I don't even remember her caring about him that much beyond, you know, the way you care about a crush. You're like, oh, this is amazing. But, like, I have a job. Like, this is not, you know, right. not the top of my to-do list. I right, mean. exactly. <laughs> also, they were 14. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so there wasn't really that much to doing going on. So to me, what this is, is like, if you rewind several decades to The Wizard of Oz, and you look at the way that The Wizard of Oz sets the good witch Glinda against the wicked witch of the West, who in Wicked is later named Alphaba, um, it's a very similar kind of dynamic, right? Like the, the wicked witch of the West is very obsessed with like appearance. She's obsessed with getting revenge on it's implicitly kind of said like women who are prettier than her, which is like sort of uh, includes Glinda and includes uh, Dorothy. 
And then also is very obsessed with like, you know, being against the system for no actual reason, right? Just like, ah, she's wicked. You know, that's just a thing that happens. Some people are evil and want to like kill everyone else. All right. I guess it just happens. Our job is not to ask why. Our job is just to go and kill those people. As, as previously mentioned, revolution is in. The protagonists wear berets. We're done. Let's go. Right. And then in Wicked, uh, oh God, let me Google who wrote Wicked. Winnie Holtzman was the playwright, but the Gregory Maguire is the one who wrote the book. Uh, so I read the book. The book is also actually very good. Surprisingly, even more sophisticated than the play, which I really like. It plays also obviously very good, very feminist. I'm very salty about the fact that it lost the Tony to Avenue Q, which I think is just the epitome of valuing privileged like voices and stories more than marginalized ones. But that aside... <laughs> So the whole point of of Wicked, the book and the play, is to say, when you have these characters who are portrayed as just, quote unquote, inherently wicked, like, what does that tell you? Like, that doesn't necessarily tell you anything about the characters themselves. That actually tells you something about the system that those characters are in, that has a need to portray some people as just unthinkingly, like pathologically evil for no understandable reason, because if people did understand the reason, they would start to agree with that person. Mm -hmm. And so in Wicked, you know, Alphaba is marginalized. Uh, She has all these morals, but uh, very crucially, and I think this is one of the things, this is one of the tropes in like recent TV, uh, and not just sci-fi TV, but TV in general, that really annoys me. Like, crucially, the fact that she's marginalized, like, it doesn't start off making her evil in the sense of, like, she just hates everybody else. Like, she desperately wants to reach out to other people. She wants to make friends. She just also, and she, she wants to just be herself and be a person. She just also wants the system to stop fucking everybody like her and also all the other marginalized people over. The problem then is that the system will then cast her as unthinkingly evil. And so it shows very clearly, like, from point A to point B, how you go from a character who is actually extremely moral. And that's why, and her morality combined with her oppression is why she revolts against the system, to everyone's perception of someone who is just, who is, like, exactly the opposite of that. And so... If you fast forward a little bit and then you get to Shira and then later to uh, Shira and Katra and then later to Kipo and Wolf, what you see is this dynamic completely reverse. It takes the part where where Alphaba and Glinda were friends, basically, and it says, okay, like these people have a personal relationship and that's what, you know, causes the evil one to turn evil or like that's a symptom of the evil one turning evil. But then it ignores everything else that Wicked brought to the table and just stops right there. So now instead of like the Wicked woman of color just being pathologically Wicked, she's Wicked because she has no other, because she has nothing else to her character or to her life besides the good, usually coded white uh, protagonist. You know, that's an interesting way of putting it. Up until up until the last bit, I was like, yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, we're really bad at, like, you know, defining what evil means because we want to have anti-heroes, but then we have to, like, say why they're bad and we don't want to tell that story or we don't want to admit that they have a point. But it is weird how they then have to introduce sort of the protagonist, and the protagonist is this, like, all-American, um, white... Kind of Aryan-looking. Um, very like yeah Aryan looking like very like 
cis, very, you know, cisgender looking um, person generally. Like, you know, if, if, even if you read Shira as, as lesbians, I mean, um, the, the, the protagonist is still a very sort of femme, you know, straight coded person. Very gender conforming. And I'd also note, I think very crucially in the case of Shira, very system conforming. In the first couple episodes of Shira, uh, you know, Adora's like, oh my God, Katra, did you realize that like they've all been lying to us all the time and that we're on the evil side? And Katra's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> like it was pretty friggin' obvious, Adora, where have you been? <laughs> and it becomes basically this 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 story about how privilege and the kind of ignorance and shelter that privilege brings are all good things. And that to me is just like so wrong because it's it's just not true. Like that kind of privilege and sheltering and system conformity almost uniformly bring bad results to all of humanity. Really not good ones. But it's very easy to see them as good results if your interest is in perpetuating the system rather than uh, affecting change. Yeah, it's like Harry Potter, which is a book we don't like anymore, <laughs> where you can look at Hermione and say, man, you know, how wacky it is that someone who grew up as an outsider to this world might not be cool with slavery. How wacky that is. <laughs> yeah, I would say even like with Harry, it's kind of similar to like, you know, like how Harry like turns out to be super good at flying. Exactly. I think it's that same kind of thing. It's, you know, for some reason in like, I don't even want to say explicitly white, like American European, but like in privileged European American thought, like it is this sense of like privilege is good and marginalization is bad, like in a moral sense. Right, 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 right. Exactly. And then if marginalization leads you to action, that action is bad. And I mean, it's really bad because it destroys the system, but now you have to make a justification for why it was bad. And so at best, at best you get, oh, it's wacky that she wants to free the house elves. And at worst you get like, oh yeah, you know, she's just evil. That's just what evil is. You know, they just want to, they want to crash the train, even though fuck the train. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I, in the case of Shira, I think there's also an additional ableist, like neurodivergent component to this. So Katra is, I think, in the first few episodes, sort of explicitly coded as like ADHD-ish. Like she has trouble with time management. She has trouble with like oversleeping. Mm -hmm. um, she has trouble with like, quote unquote, discipline. And she's abused for it very badly by Shadow Weaver, which is part of how she realizes like the system is fucked up. And then Shira goes on to have this character of Entrapta, who is one of the princesses who is super autistic coded. Huh. Um, like, sh she has a very, like, kind of flat, affectless voice. She, like, clearly has a lot of trouble with social skills. And she's also super, super science and uh, engineering and, like, STEM-oriented. So, like, she does basically all of the tech. Like, she's, like, you know, the tech genius. And what happens is at the end of season one of Shira, Entrapta gets like trapped somewhere while they're storming, while the princesses are trying to storm the horde uh, place, the bad guys. And like she's trapped for like five minutes, and then they just decide that she's dead, and like then they just get out of there. Like they make no effort to look for her or figure out what happened to her. And it's literally just like she's in like a cabinet for like two minutes, and they're just like, oh, I guess she's dead. We'd all better leave and just like not give a shit about trying to find her what that's not okay <laughs> i thought the princesses were all about love and friendship 
and stuff right, and so- friendship that's secretly coded as love but not really because ah oh, you gotta keep the gays Right. So this is what I mean. Like in Sailor Moon, they would never have done this, right? Like Sailor Moon would explicitly have had an episode about how it is not okay to write off your friends. Sailor Moon, Sailor Scouts would never have abandoned their friends, but they never even would have brought it up that their friends are weird. I mean, all of them were weird. I mean, look at look at Sailor Moon. Come on. She's so obnoxious and they're still her friends <laughs> i know right <laughs> they never even bring it up they're like haha it's funny how you're clumsy and not like oh my god like really though <laughs> yeah <laughs> and like I'm, I'm sure that a lot of people will contest this because like i've talked about this on twitter a little bit and i've definitely had some reactions that were like no the whole point is that they were wrong for doing it and you can argue that in the text that they suffer some consequences because then entrapta well i guess here's what i here's what i think because what happens is right after that like entrapta like comes out of this cabinet like five minutes later she realizes her friends have like totally abandoned her uh she's like what the fuck and then the bad guy like the chief bad guy at the time finds her and she's like all right i guess i'm flipping my allegiance to you because you have better tech that's like in front of me right now and that really i really 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 hate that because like that is very very clearly to me a coding of like being autistic gives you uh, like worse morals or makes you less able to understand like morality when in fact all of the evidence from autistic people suggests that the opposite is true like autistic people actually often tend to have much more rigid senses of right and wrong and are much less willing to transgress them than the average person which is like you know not always not always good if your sense of right and wrong is you know we need to follow the procedure and this is not following procedure and that's bad but it's definitely not like the person with the coolest tech wins that's not that's not autism that's Salieri from that the Amadeus movie yeah (laughs) yeah exactly and so to me it's just this whole thing of like like on the one hand I kind of support Entrapta like for me it was very like complex to watch this because on the one hand I was like I really support Entrapta being like fuck these princesses like clearly this friendship is extremely surface level because I also do wholeheartedly I really think it was very intentional of the writers to write like the one clearly like super neurodivergent and like different from the other princesses at the time character as the one who gets betrayed and the one who whose friends like immediately give up on her. This really just feeds into my paranoia that being friends with neurotypical people is very hard. Yeah. <laughs> Can't trust them. Yeah. So like this whole thing just like super, super, super rubbed me the wrong way because it just felt very much like it's aesthetically a hope punk show about like, yes, fighting against the bad guys is a good thing to do. But I feel like as soon as you go below the surface, it's actually a show about like people, a lot of people who have unearned privilege and who are trying to use that privilege against a system that is like, that is clearly bad. Um, But then it starts to make you wonder, like, is it bad or is this just like, like it starts to feel super overly simplified um, in a, as a way of propping up the goodness of the protagonist who, in my opinion, don't really seem to deserve it. Yeah. I think that it has always been sold to me as a show about people who are very flawed. And so, like, the point is that they're all, like, just, you know, walking, like, you know, anxious disasters that make stupid mistakes all the time. Well, I guess also, like, to me, a lot of those, like, you know, anxious disaster mistakes are very, very clearly, like stemming from their privilege and insulation and like the fact that they live i mean they're all literally princesses they live in like fucking castles damn like 
Like they live in castles and they have servants and like they don't actually have to do anything for themselves. Uh, and they know that there is this thing that they're supposed to be fighting against. And like, it feels to me like a large part of the reason why they constantly make these mistakes is because they don't actually have enough experience like of the real world to be reasonable at like figuring out like this is what we should do to like fight this thing. Ah, so I think that agrees with the perspective that it's a show about overdramatic privileged teenagers. Yeah. And so adults like it when they look back on their lives and they're like, yeah, I remember being an overdramatic privileged teenager and that was that was fun. You know, maybe I wasn't that privileged, but I like wanted to be. So, you know, it, it, it evens out. So another show that I want to mention super briefly that I first started to notice really trafficking in this kind of story is actually Downton Abbey. Huh. Like the first season of Downton Abbey, the middle child who like is the one who like can never really quite do anything right, like is constantly like yelled at by the parents um, and then gets out competed by, you know, just instantly by her like clearly kind of much more privileged older sister then becomes evil and then in the same way there's like the one gay like footman or somebody and it turns out he's the evil one too and then similarly like the socialist driver who marries like the youngest daughter also turns out to be like a huge jackass in a lot of ways like you can just tell that the that the guy who writes it julian fellows is like super you know british tory conservative because like it very much has that same dynamic of like, you know, marginalized people are evil, you know, because they hate the system. And so that hatred of the system turns them like super evil and not just like revolutionary or, you know, the identification of revolutionary as evil. So the reason I mentioned this is because this is also what happens in Kipo and the Age of Wonder Beasts, which is the other cartoon we tried to watch. Oh, man, I was so <laughs> excited. I really wanted it to be good. And then I didn't watch the first episode, so I missed the beginning of things being problematic. And then they just continued to be like more and more problematic. So I guess I, I'm glad I didn't watch all of it. So Keep on the Age of Wonder Beast is another show that, you know, it's created by white guys. The staff appears to be mostly white guys, some white women, and I think like one Asian woman. Uh, as like the woman of color and crucially Kipo herself. So Kipo in this, in the series is written as half black and half uh, like East Asian. And she is voiced and, and she has darkish skin and then like, you know, whitish hair. And she is voiced by like a very like East Asian person who is clearly not in any way black. Uh. There is a black girl character, Wolf. And the thing that again, rubs me the wrong way about Wolf is like, she doesn't have, she's not shown to have any kind of interest or personality beyond essentially her like connection to Kipo. And additionally, she is written as kind of this consummate survivalist and she's alone all the time and she refuses to have connections because she's a consummate survivalist. And the thing to me is that like, that is a very privileged white guy way of thinking about like survival. (laughs) Because if you are a woman, and I think especially if you're a woman of color, you pretty quickly figure out that your survival actually depends very strongly on your connections and on your ability to maintain connections with other people. I mean, I can also, I mean, I have I have a counter to that, which is that I think that there is something to be said for saying, look, this character is really cool because they're able to do this and survive alone. But then there's a weird privilege thing in saying, and this makes them bad. As opposed to, no, actually, like, they are pretty cool. 
I would appreciate a show that would play that well and that like this is a character that like survives alone and then you're like okay but like by alone we don't really mean alone we mean like they're friendly to everybody like a motorcyclist you know you have to like be really friendly to other motorists and you gesture a lot you're like it's a lot of like emotional labor to actually like go through the road make sure everyone sees you and doesn't kill you even though it makes you look hardcore at the end people see you and they're like oh you know they are riding alone on their motorcycle they're so hardcore they don't need anybody else but in fact like that not needing other people comes from like to get there you have to do a lot of emotional labor of like being part of a a community actively yeah you don't need to need other people but you still have to at least maintain good relations with them to not get hurt so what is what does need really mean in that context yeah like they write her as attacking every problem like violently and again like she's a 12 year old girl like i don't care how like physically badass you are but you're just not gonna survive as a 12 year old girl like going around being violent to everybody and so if she is as cool as they want her to be like it's like they're, they're they've written her as being super cool in a way that is super 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 implausible specifically so that then they can turn around and say that she's evil do they say that she's evil well they don't say say it exactly but what happens is like there's a very important message from kipo's dad that she finds and then like does not show to kipo for a long time what yeah and it's specifically in that episode so this was the episode that really really soured me on this show so like in this episode what happens is she goes off like they split up uh, to search around like the ruins of new york and so she goes off you know wandering around trying to find this thing for trying to find this present for kipo and you know she finds this message from her dad now kipo wanders around literally like within 30 seconds picks up like a random hairpin off the ground and it's like aha this will be the perfect present for wolf and then the guy in their group takes Kipo to this, like, amusement park, which, by the way, is run by rats, which I did appreciate. Aww. <laughs> and, like, it's very great because the rats are like, yes, we like everybody and we want everyone to come here and feel safe and, like, play with us in this amusement park. And I was like, that's so ratty. <laughs> So what happens is this guy, and this is supposed to be like a subversion of like, he's into Kipo or Wolf, because then it turns out that he's gay. Sure. He takes Kipo to this amusement park. And he's like, I wanted you to see that the surface isn't all bad. And Kipo was like, well, what about Wolf? And he was like, Oh, I don't want to bring Wolf here. She just ruins everything. Wow. What a dick. Yes. (laughs) And this is never challenged in the show. So then they come back, they meet up, they kind of talk about like what happened you know Kipo and Benson tell Wolf like oh we went to this amusement park it was amazing then you know this happened like blah 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 and I was thinking to myself if I were Wolf in this situation I would be so hurt like first of all if you really believe that like Wolf is that that you know this is the way to show people that the surface isn't all bad shouldn't you bring Wolf here who is the one who actually keeps thinking this and then secondly, you know, the fact that he's like, oh, it's just, you know, she is inherently bad. She ruins everything. Like, if I were Wolf, I would be so hurt by that. And that's why I wouldn't show them. You know, like, I would be like, I just spent, like, half a day wandering around the ruins of New York City trying to find you a thing. And, like, apparently you, like, just picked a random thing off, off the ground and then went and had a whole lot of fun without me. Like, I would be really hurt by this. Yeah. And then that might be why it would take a little while to, like, show this because I would be angry. But in the show, what happens is, like, she doesn't have any reaction to that. Like, she's not really treated as a character who gets to have an opinion about, like, things that people do that don't involve her. And then in the next episode, like, it's made clear that her 
uh, dream is just to like live with Kipo on the surface hunting things and having like zero other interactions or and like no other depth. Like after that, she gives Kipo the letter saying, you know, I'm sorry, this was because I was afraid of losing you. And at that point, I was like, oh, God, this was my worst nightmare that yeah. it would be because he's just so obsessed with Kipo and afraid of losing her instead of like the fact that she actually had an opinion about these about like these people being dicks to her. Yeah. So that's my entire like Kipo, like misogynoir rant. I don't know how to say this word misogynoir. And like it just keeps bringing it just keeps bringing me back to this idea of like Wicked came out like twenty years ago and like completely subverted this entire story dynamic. Like all these people had to do to write a better story was watch Wicked and actually understand it. <laughs> and they couldn't even do that. They didn't. They just didn't think about it. They were like, "What's you know? We need we need a sidekick. We need someone else in the show." Well, how about we make them black? How about we make them hardcore? And then they like, um, I don't know. I think when we talked about it last time, my joke was that when they're making Sailor Moon, they had to make the other scouts interesting because they had to sell toys. Yes, and I loved that insight. No one's no one's gonna buy toys of really shitty Transformers if they're all just obsessed with the main Transformer. So you have to make all of them be good. You have to like make all of the Sailor Scouts be interesting, or like no one's gonna get the toy of Sailor Mercury. And I feel like this is this has this problem where you're like, okay, but like you have to make these characters have something going on for them that's not that's not just the protagonist. It doesn't doesn't work. Yeah, I think this kind of goes back to our like founding episode of like B level versus A level stuff. Like it seems to me that a lot of these cartoons are an attempt to like rebrand kids' cartoons as A level shows for adults. And, like, that really loses. It turns out the entire charm of kids' shows, cartoon shows, is that they are B-level. I, I think I think that I would agree with that. Actually, I would even say it exposes the shallowness of, like, taking these shows and putting them into what we now think of as this prestige format of, like, you know, limited run, 10 episodes a season. Or in the case of she sometimes, like, six episodes a season. And then so plot driven that there's no room for the other characters to breathe. Yeah, you need you really need that you need that space uh, for the characters to have character. The reason why everyone still fucking loves Star Trek, even though it was kind of a shitty show objectively, is that all of those characters had you know twenty episodes of season of stupid shit happens to Kira this episode. Look at Kira and her terrorist ex boyfriend again, but. Because it didn't need to have that laser focus, it had space to do that. And if you look at prestige TV shows, um, with a few exceptions, they all have this problem, um, even to the point where, like, Mad Men, which was one of the sort of er, uh, main prestige shows, was really good until it started focusing on Don Draper because it needed to wrap up the plot. And it turned out nobody watching Mad Men really cared about Don Draper. <laughs> they were there for, like, all of the women, and it was kind of a disappointment when that just kind of got dropped on the floor or closed off with these really sort of, like, pat, eh, you know, it worked out. Or they died. One of the two <laughs> closings. I, I would have. I would have liked to see Betty, Betty Draper live to be a you know Phyllis Shafley supporter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
And I, I agree with you. Like, kind of all of these shows that we think of as, like, foundational fandom shows, I think. Like, I think, actually, even the MCU has this problem to some extent. Like, obviously, they've had movies dedicated to all of their side characters. And, you know, obviously, they have a huge, you know, fandom base. But something to me feels very different about it than um, other things that I have been in the fandom for. And I really think it is because even when they have all these side character digressions, they're all very, very plot driven. Like there's still like an, a huge overarching plot that like everyone has to get in line for. And so when they have like things that the characters do that are digressions, they don't actually feel organic or interesting in the same way that they would on like uh, any, anything else that fans are really into like supernatural or in my case, like Stargate SG one, or you know, just kind of name one of these shows. It it doesn't it doesn't feel like it's something the characters are doing, which makes sense because an average Avengers movie has like what ten minutes per character of character development. Yep. So you you really gotta you really gotta compress it. I want to make a call for TV returning to like twenty six episodes, like twenty three to twenty six episodes a season, and <laughs> like random episodes that are quote unquote filler that don't necessarily like add anything to the plot, but are just like fun. Yeah, let's. I just I just miss people having fun with it again. Like, and you can you can have fun with cartoons too. That's that's why I was excited about uh, Kimi originally because it looked like a cartoon where people were having fun. They were like, "It's lumberjack cats," and you're like, "That's amazing." You're drunk. I'm yeah. drunk. We're friends. And then you're like, "Oh, but you are also <laughs> racist." Um, yeah. Like the first several episodes of Kipo really are just like different apocalyptic like universes that kind of fit that are kind of fit into this aesthetic. The lumberjack cats one I think is really a homage to uh Janestown, the episode Janestown from Firefly. Um and then there's one that is all about like these snakes that play guitars and it's what? very clearly like six string samurai. Fuck yeah. <laughs> I love that movie. <laughs> Yeah. And then like in the first couple episodes, there's a whole bunch of like car chases and it's very clearly like Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, yeah. The, with the, the frogs and, and suits. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, this is great. We're just like giving kids a tour of all these like, you know, adult apocalypse like dramas. This is awesome. I love it. With good animals. Yeah. <laughs> in like a BoJack Horseman kind of way. But then uh, and then and then this is the other thing that I really hated about Kipo is that it quickly became clear that it, in fact, has anti-revolutionary politics. Yeah. Tell me tell me more about that. So so Kipo is on the surface because her quote unquote borough, which is like her underground community of people, uh, of humans, uh, gets collapsed by a huge mutant animal or what they call a mega mute. And uh, it's not clear why this happened. But then as Kipo goes around on the surface, she starts to find out, oh, there's this mute, this, this mutant animal called Scarlemagne, who seems to be collecting humans. Like, he's the one that everyone wants to catch us so that they can sell us to him. Mm -hmm. And at first, you don't know that Scarlemagne is a mutant animal. You're just like, oh, all right, there's this Scarlemagne guy, whatever. I kind of assumed he was a mutant animal just because everyone else is, but... Well, I was really hoping that he would turn out to be a human. Because, oh, yeah, like, that would have been good. That would have made the politics of the show much less insufferable. But it turns out, in fact, that he's an animal. And, and then he gives this whole speech to a whole bunch of animals that's like, only 200 years ago, humans kept us locked up in cages that they called zoos. And that is why now I have developed this pheromone that makes humans totally compliant to my bidding and we must round them all up so that we can now you know conquer them and like take over the earth and like this is like such 
a white caricature of revolutionary politics. Like, I'm sorry, this just takes all of the white people boxes. <laughs> it, you know, we had an episode where we talked about like labor and revolution in science fiction. And um, this kind of dovetails with that because it's the same thing of like, you just can't imagine why anybody would want to crash the train. Right. Yeah. Like it's again, this question of like, there can be no moral reason. Like, if, if, in fact, in 200 years, animals did become, like, human-level, intelligent, and sentient, and were upset about the fact that they were kept in zoos, like, I would be like, you know what? I feel like you kind of have a point. Like, I'm not even trying to be, like, pro-zoo here, <laughs> although I think they they have, I think zoos certainly have a role to play in terms of animal conservation, you know, blah, yeah. blah, blah. But the thing that feels super white about it to me is that it's very clearly supposed to be, like, a a kind of take on like black lives matter protests in the sense of like, you know, when, you know, if you think about the 1619, the 1619 project and, you know, kind of the summary that you could give of it is like only 400 years ago, like, you know, Africans were bought, were brought to these shores for the first times as slaves and then kept in slavery for, you know, hundreds of years after that, you know, and so we need to change that system. And it very much feels like the white people take on that of like, oh, so if you guys want equality now, then does that mean I have to stop like, you know, that I have to like, take my animals out of the cages and set them free and let them like, you know, eat me or whatever. Like, it kind of feels like that. It's, uh, but it's, it's, it's like a classic problem of privilege where the only way you can imagine is the future where you don't have it is if the minorities treat you the way you treat them but then you like pretend that this is what's going to happen when that's not it's like all of the 1950s like pulp science fiction novels about the planet of women yeah <laughs> who rule men with their terrible man-hating ways and they make them house husbands and like that's the future the feminists want um and the same sort of like you know one day, all people of color will rise up and oppress white people. We're, we're being serious and insightful here, guys. We're not just having issues. <laughs> we're Pro- not just projecting, like, every atrocity that we have, you know, that we have put onto other people, like, back onto ourselves. Yeah, it's actually a good way of putting it, because it's like, it's a way of avoiding responsibility. It's like, it's not that we did a thing that was bad. It's that it is just natural for someone to do that thing. Right. Yeah. And that's why if we ever lose, they will also do that thing to us because it's natural. We don't have to take responsibility for what happened or for what is happening now in a lot of cases. Yes, I love this because I think that's also that is really the heart of what feels so morally bankrupt about this to me is that they are basically saying when when anyone who does this kind of plot is basically saying like the whole idea of equal consensual coexistence is a lie. Because if it was true, then we would have it by now. And since we don't, clearly it's because it's a lie and not because we've done jack shit to actually, you know, look at where we are and fight for it. Right. It, and, and it can't be because, like, we actually have no interest in having equal consensual existence because we are busy profiting off the fact that we don't have it. Right, exactly. Yeah. Oh, man. This conversation has made me feel a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, actually. (laughs) (laughs) So, Elam, uh, what did we learn about tokenization today? We learned that if all you have is one person of color that you hired to make your show seem diverse, that's not going to help. 
especially if that person of color, or even if there's multiple people of color, but they are all in the lower status position, such as the like only person of color writer or an actor and not in the high status positions that actually make decisions like showrunner. We can see what you're doing television. We can see through you. Yeah, you're on IMDb. It does not it does not look good. So, Elam, uh what is coming up in next episodes? You know, we haven't been planning these as much as we used to, which is for the best. So uh, I'm just going to say some things that we have watched. So I'm watching through The Wire, and it's um, and it's interesting narratively. I don't, I have no idea if it's accurate in any sort of practical sense, but the storytelling is really good. I think it's one of the few prestige TV shows that I have good things to say to say about. Oh man, that's amazing. I tried watching The Wire once and after I was like intensely bored during the first episode, <laughs> which I guess is maybe how you're supposed to feel. I don't know. Oh, definitely. It takes a while to get going. It's like Game of Thrones, but like actually good. But I, I feel like Game of Thrones was actually very compelling during the first episode. Like it was compellingly slow, which maybe is why it was bad later. Maybe. I mean, okay, so that's, that's not true. I think it, I think it's particularly bad in the first couple of episodes and takes like a while to sort of get there. And I think it suffers from a lot of problems, some of which are sort of problems of its time and some of which are problems of its execution. But I, I admire it for, um, for trying and for being surprisingly good at having a very large cast of characters that all come off as being sort of people and sort of being human and letting those characters breathe and not sort of losing sight of what makes them people in 10 to 12 episodes a season. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So maybe we will discuss The Wire more. Um, I have been watching a show called Search Party. And all I can say is it's really the... Well, actually, I should say Younger is really like the vapid millennial show for my <laughs> vapid millennial soul, but so is Search Party. <laughs> I've heard really good things about Search Party. I feel like everything I've heard about it has been has been good. And I feel guilty for not having watched it. Search Party is an excellent dark satire of millennials. So we should definitely talk about it. Oh yeah, we watched the point is look, uh we're not really going out much these days. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> so we've had a lot of time to watch stupid television. Like I the only reason I want season gazillion of the wire is because I have nothing else to do in my life. Yes. <laughs> so there will be more episodes. Uh we have a lot to talk about. We're really excited. We think we have the workflow going. We have a new logo. Subscribe to us on all the subscription-y things. And follow us on Twitter. Yeah, say hello on Twitter. (laughs) Is that how Twitter works? Yes, that's basically how Twitter works. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, what else is tokenization? It's when all of your sci-fi is in Bitcoin. It's when your Flask app doesn't uh, pass the right security tokens <laughs> to your browser. <laughs> it's, it's when you have to...